welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Jessica Markram. If you'd like to introduce yourself for our audience. Hi, I'm Jessica Markram, pronouns she, her, and I'm a game designer, streamer, and sensitivity reader. So we were talking a little bit, and I just wanted to continue the conversation now that we're we're here, here, and we're talking. So now you work from home, and you started out, I think it was 2018, 2017, writing, correct? 2018, yeah. Uncaged was my first thing. Yeah, tell me about, like, what it is that happened with Uncaged. It was like an open call from Ashley Warren, correct? How did that process start for you? So Ashley put out a call on Twitter and also on her website, I found out because a friend of mine grabbed me in our friendly local game store and showed me the call and was like, you really need to write for this. And I was like, I've never written for an RPG in my life. And I barely, or I've never written for an RPG. uh, And I don't really play (laughs) D&D. At the time I was running a lot of PBTA and she was like, no, but it's like a Greek mythology thing. And it's a feminist thing. You have to do this. And I was, and you're a GM, like writing an adventure is the same thing as GMing. Uh, so I applied and I got in and now this is my job. <laughs> amazing. What an amazing story. Um, for you, what was the, you did a lot of technical writing prior to from your previous career, right? You don't have to talk about your previous career if you don't want, but. Not really. I mean, well, everybody, I, I, a lot of people think social workers could write grants. Uh, mostly I just wrote case notes. Oh, <laughs> so okay. yeah, not. I was in direct practice. Uh, so for listeners, I was, uh, my previous, previous career was as an opera singer, which had uh, no writing whatsoever. And then I was a social worker, trauma therapist. So the only thing I really wrote was uh, case notes. So writing was just something I did for fun. Like uh, I used to write uh, back in the heyday of like, TV Gasm and the other, the one that Bravo ended up owning. I used to write recaps for them. Oh, uh, really? But, yeah, but they didn't pay. <laughs> what but, a random uh, job. <laughs> yeah, cool. so like a pretend job with a fun internet community. And I had a blog yeah. and like that was my only writing. And, wow. you know, like master's papers. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. Um, Yeah, I guess you do write a lot in college if you're going for your master's for social work, right? Yeah, yeah I like think a paper a day kind of thing. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose that's where you get a lot of your writing discipline then from, huh? I guess. Yeah, it's it's always reading and writing and never for fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. So for for your transition, like mentally and moving into uh, writing adventures and things for fun or like fiction or writing adventures in our niche, what was it like to start exploring that sort of uh, creative space as someone who hadn't before? Was it like opening up a door to like a whole new realm? Was it like, you know, was there music playing in the background and like there's flowers and sunshine or like how was it for you? <laughs> uh, the first time it was terrifying. I misread the call and didn't realize that she wanted pitches. I thought she was like, send me a rough draft of the adventure. <laughs> So I wrote the rough draft of one of the adventures and then was like, oh, right before I sent it, thank goodness I caught it and was like, she just wants a pitch. So I <laughs> sent the pitch instead and saved myself the embarrassment. But when she accepted it, it was ready to go. Um, but uh, yeah, when I actually started writing, I having a template really helps me. I'm someone who does really well with direction. So Ashley was great about that. And to this day, if someone's like, here's a template or a sample and just take the sample and do it like this, but then you have freedom in all these other places. I I very much like freedom, uh, structured freedom, shall we say. Yeah. No, I totally relate. I um I used to be a pantser. Um, and when I was like writing growing up and stuff like that, and I would just like whatever came out of my brain, I would just like put it onto the page. That's how I wrote like fantasy stories and stuff. But um when I uh transitioned to the military for a while, I learned uh, you know, combat orders and things like that and writing that and sort of a structured outline approach. And then my brain shifted to outline. So since then I'm pretty much an outliner. Um, and I prefer mm. that way because then I can, what I do 
for like everything that I write, including like the Tower of Atonement adventure that I just wrote. I basically like I put everything in a box and then I like and then I say this box is for and then I label everything and then I go back and then I that's so nice. And I write like um, this box is for scary narrative of when they (laughs) approach the tower. And then I write this box is for narrative options for the NPC. And then that's how I go through and I design adventures. I really love that. That works for me. Yeah. And that's so helpful, I think. Um, I, I think I kind of end up outlining in a similar way where I'll um, get a thing where I'm like, okay, so here's your three acts, or if it's a really long one, maybe your five acts. Uh, here's where they're going to take place, or here's the vague beat of what they're about. I never title them in the outline because I'm so bad at that. But I'll be like, this one is going to deal with this. And then generally the next thing I just write like handshake sentence. And then like box text goes here. Box text is a description thing. And then here's what's happening. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes I just write like in the in the box or whatever. Sometimes I just write, this is the feeling I would like to evoke. And I don't even have any description or any idea of what I'm going to write at that point. It's just like, this is where I want to go with the tone um, in this next section. Um, e- any any notes in my first outline or whatever is like pretty much how I do. I'm writing a new adventure. Um, and I guess by the time, maybe by the time it comes out, maybe I'll like have previewed this for uh, the people who are interested in the vineyard but i just wrote it i just wrote like a pitch for it and that's how Mm -hmm. i normally start is i like write maybe a paragraph or two of like what's the hook what's like the general story and why is this interesting and i wrote basically like i would like to write an adventure like glass onion but set in like um a have you seen the movie okay so um i i figured (laughs) but um you just just strike me as a type how many times (laughs) (laughs) you strike me as the type so um but uh no it's not a bad thing i (laughs) But um, what was I saying? Okay, so it's going to be like a, there's going to be a party. um, And I would like for, so the Vineyard, like, is a criminal organization that has control of necromancy. And I was thinking that it would be cool if there was a Glass Onion style adventure, but all of the people involved or the people that are clues or witnesses or um, what do you call those suspects? are um dead people who were resurrected oh that's so fun yeah so it was like a so it's like a murder that occurred like three or four hundred years ago and it's something that like ashlyn the head of the vineyard puts on as like a game um so i thought that would be a fun adventure just as like a low level here's an introduction to the vineyard um as opposed I to like a normal it. combat one or something like that so yeah that's I my, love that's my pitch. in games too uh because they're so fun and like there can be combat but also like when people commit to it it can be really rewarding for the table to figure stuff out together yeah absolutely and i think um those sort of things can be difficult to write well because you always have that danger of like giving it away right away or you feel like you do but i find with most situations you're probably best uh, giving away too much information because then they're going to argue amongst themselves anyway. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you want to do what is it the the three clue problem? Three clue, yeah, right. yeah. So like, put your clues multiple places they can find them, but also, uh, it's hard writing smart uh, criminals sometimes. <laughs> Because uh, not being a smart criminal myself, having to think up a dastardly plan is takes a lot of work. And it can be embarrassing when you're finally doing what you think you have executed as a good plan. And the table is like, they figured it out. And they're like, this can't be the real plan. No one's this stupid. <laughs> and you're like, ah, no, baby, he is that stupid. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's especially difficult for, depending on the structure of the game, some games really do not support mysteries well, and D&D is definitely one of those games that does not, especially after a certain level, like you just get all these spells that basically allow there to be no mystery. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, see the future, see through walls. Yeah. Scry on everybody. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I think one of the things that um, you sort of have to, like, create this arena with your adventure after a certain level where you're sort of restricting those sort of abilities and 
that's especially true for like travel or any sort of teleportation. Uh, normally can be, I, I guess, sort of one of those conceits of D&D that you don't have as many times or uh, situations where you're like, you have that Lord of the Rings moment where there's like this giant chasm and like that's an actual like very um, dramatic moment. Um, and there's so much that magic will spoil in D&D, I think. I think, I mean, I'm biased just because I writing directed a book that was all tier four adventures so i know that there are ways that you can make high level play really interesting and fun but it is a lot of work and you could do it without restricting players access to spells but you have to make the enemies and the terrain just as powerful or more so than they are so like mess with their sense of gravity or have them fight gods kind of thing and uh it's like get weird and wild with it and having like a cozy little mystery you're right is not really going to be working at level 18 because they're not solving cozy little mysteries at that point they're punching god in the face (laughs) yeah um Let's talk about, okay, we're going to skip all the other stuff. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to all the other stuff that we have planned. Let's talk, since we just talked about Uncaged Goddesses, let's talk about it. For designing high-level adventures and things to keep in mind, what are some of the things that you learned in your process working on Uncaged Goddesses that you had not found out prior to or new things to you? Ooh, okay. Let me refer to the quick guide to running tier four that I wrote. <laughs> pull up my past work because I have no memory. Oh, okay. Um, So I think a common issue that a lot of GMs run into when they think of high level play is that um, they just increase the HP of antagonists. And that's when you get really boring combat slogs, or they give them um, immunities and don't give the player characters uh, weapons to overcome that. And again, that's when combat gets really long and unfun. And if you make it more about, you know, motivations, like what do they want from this combat, then I personally find that more rewarding. Also think people uh, get nervous about wish when you get, especially in uh, D&D and Pathfinder DMs, because like your PBTA GMs and your, um, of course, uh, people are used to playing GM-less games are used to the players taking control over the world. But D&D and Pathfinder and other traditional game GMs aren't so used to that. So giving players something like Wish can be very scary. And I say, let them do it. Let them break the world. Show them the consequences of that. Yeah. Yeah, I... That's where the fun comes in. Give them the power to break the world and then show them what happens when they break things. I I really like that attitude and that perspective um, for high level play because it, I think in a lot of uh, story arcs, maybe you've been playing this character for a short while um, and you're telling in a fundamentally different kind of story or story in which this is the culmination of who someone is rather than mm-hmm. their... Um, I guess, come up story. Uh, what would you call yeah. that? Their manifestation um, story. So it's a different, it's definitely a different type of story. It's like, what is this person's legacy going to be rather than what is their um, formative year? Like, do they become the big bad of the universe with their actions? Because at this level, they can. Wow. Yeah, that's that's definitely a great, um, I think, perspective to sort of shift to for this style of writing. Um, and that's definitely where I would like to end up with our higher level adventures that we're working on for for that reason because i think ultimately like the a a story that i find to be fairly interesting is like the kind of the ingrown story of like vampires like do you lose control to do you lose like your humanity so i'm very interested in stories um Mm -hmm. and i don't think that they're like the default perspective of D is really well there's a lot of problematic perspectives but like the (laughs) the um (laughs) Like there's the there's like the colonizer perspective, but like generally the perspective that is pitched for adventures is like you are the um, savior of this place that is going to fix things, or um, yeah. you're the only one who can resolve this circumstance. When I think perhaps more high level play, especially, is more geared towards what sort of moral uh, conundrums can you? I suppose responsibly and uh, responsibly tell. I think there's um, 
more room for ambiguity at the higher levels. I think you can do ambiguity at a small scale, but it's going to be more like people that you know. On a higher level, it's um, your actions are affecting the world or the universe kind of thing. So you have a greater chance to do harm to protect the people that you care about. So your choices, uh, I mean, choices should always matter, but they matter on a much larger scale. Also, it can be a real bummer if like... (laughs) If you like, if if people like have some unintended consequence of what they have done with their character or what they've chosen uh, to do. And yeah, I think that's a that's like a constant fear of mine running high level play is like they do something and then I'm just like, uh, like, okay, well, now the whole city has died or like something like, you know, like that. And um, I think that. So that's where I'm like, yeah, that whole city died. I need to do more like what you did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, you want to use wish to bring that city back? Okay, let's see. What's the cost of this wish? What happens now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking about like some of my my games and like uh, sort of like the the social contract between me as a GM and some of these players is like they don't want to be uh, the villain. Yeah. And if unintentionally they become the villain, I think that they'd be, be sad. They would be really sad, correct? Yeah. So it's just like I'm just thinking about all those players where they kind of fall into that niche right now. Um and I'm just like, oh, I got to be careful. But um there's other parties that are just like, yeah, I would just love it if we just had a super tragic like consequence to like a difficult decision that we made. And that's just not every group. Um so yeah, I think that's a it depends kind of answer for me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, I mean, having run every uncaged adventure, uh, that's a common theme throughout the anthology is that some of the adventures leave you feeling kind of, oh, I think I yeah. made the right choice, but I feel bad about it, which is not for every table. Um, yeah. And not every adventure in the series does that, but there right. are certain ones where, um, you know, you have your players who are like, we're going to be a big damn hero. And then you go in there and they're like, oh, well, uh, they they seem to have their reasons for doing these horrible crimes. Um, I, are, am I going to let them keep hurting all of these people to protect these other people? I mm. <laughs> what is the social contract here? What's the correct decision? Yeah. And there were a couple ones where after uh, recording the players were like i i feel funny now <laughs> yeah for sure it's um i like games that make you uh it's fun to go be a hero but i also like games that make you feel kind of uh question what you're doing in a game <laughs> yeah for sure i actually had a table break up because of something that happened that was not necessarily like a moral quandary type thing but it was a choice that one of them had made like it was a uh, it was a strad campaign and they chose to do something to make sure that or try to make sure that irena survived mm-hmm. and that person and irena still died um, oh god that's heartbreaking yeah it was super heartbreaking like i was weeping with this player um after the game and um yeah and the table like there was some things that happened as a consequence of that Mm -hmm. that ended up making me uh choose to like step away from that table um Mm -hmm. because it was too much um but uh yeah it was it was definitely one of those things where it was like i had sort of predicted that something like that may occur with this group mm-hmm. because of like me understanding those players. And I played with that, played with that group for nine months. Like I knew them pretty well at that point, as far as like their play style and like what, you know, what they wanted and what they found fun. But yeah, it just, you know, um, in, in that case, um, I don't think that I made a mistake. I just, I just let it happen. You know what I mean? Cause you yeah. can make a choice as a GM and like, you know, have, you know, fudge fudge your dice. yeah, you can do that. I did not. Um, they both died. So, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's like, I run horror games so much that, mm-hmm. um, and you have to stack the deck so much against players in order to make things actually scary because without the danger, there's no tension. Without the tension, there's mm-hmm. no stakes. And um, 
that's just sort of a, a thing that happens sometimes where after playing with me in horror games for a while, sometimes people are just like, you know what, I just can't do this anymore. And it's just not their sort of game. So it's definitely, yeah, it's an individual choice, I think. And it's individual like preference for a lot of that stuff when you have those ambiguous circumstances and potentially like kind of bummer outcomes. I actually, speaking of running horror games, I love Bluebeard's Bride for how uh-huh. it facilitates uh, horror games. Tell me more about that. A, um, It's a game where everyone kind of plays it's a pbta game and you are all playing aspects of bluebeard's bride so you're all the same person but one person is kind of in control at the same time and you're exploring the house but you kind of know from the start that it's not going to have a happy ending and you don't have weapons. Even the move to be like violent is called dirty yourself with violence. So your main moves are dirty yourself with violence, cry out for help or caress a horror. And basically everything in this house is trying to kill you. And there's a move that I love called uh, shiver with fear. And it happens, you can do it voluntarily, but it's also involuntary. So like when a player is like, ugh, kind of thing, uh, that's when the GM is like, so tell me what you're afraid of right now and draws on player fears as well. And so they tell you what they're most afraid is going to happen. And the GM tells you how it's worse than that. That sounds badass. I love it. Yeah. Can you link me to that? I will provide a link in the show notes. I'm very curious about this game. I need to try this out. Yeah. I'm a big fan of like um, uh, Coriolis and like... uh, uh alien um Mm -hmm. i really enjoy those systems because of the way that they approach rising tension and um the aspect of danger and how that's sort of like approached in like the relationship between the gm and the players yeah uh, as far as like transferring the dice back and forth more or less so yeah i think that's that's a very cool like way to interpersonally sort of rise the tension and tell the story together where it gives both of you some some stake and some say in what's happening. I think that is much better for horror games, honestly, because you get more buy-in, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like it a lot. Check this out. I'm going to take a look here. It's been out for a while. 2017 or so, oh, maybe okay, earlier. Okay. I know I wrote about it for grad school. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So... Uh... Yeah, I'm going to check this out. I might uh, I might run this for my community. Yeah, have fun with that. All right. Um, let's talk about your sort of professional routine. You as a game designer, because you're sitting in the spot where, believe it or not, most people want to be um, <laughs> who listen to this podcast. So okay. um, you're speaking to like the people who are very interested to do what you do. Uh, what is your normal routine like? Um, do you even wear pants most of the time? Uh, <laughs> Uh, my normal routine, I, uh, I have ADHD, so my normal routine should not be emulated by anyone because I have pretty severe executive dysfunction, (laughs) but, um, I do keep a calendar and try and, uh, keep on top of that. Sorry. It's funny. I was on a panel recently where they asked all of us writers, like, what's your schedule like? And there were a couple of people who were like, oh, I wake up at like six every morning and then I write for two hours straight and then I go for a jog and then I go like teach at a college class or I go do this other thing or I have the day free, but I'm very strict about my time. And I was like, I wake up when I get up. I take two hours to have breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But yeah, I, um, it's really important for me to write every day unless I have specifically given myself that day off and I will designate those days in advance. Uh, Because when you work from home, it's very easy to like, you know this, to confuse work time with home time. Uh, And when you work on your computer and you play on your computer, there's uh, a lot of crossover between those two so designating actual work time is uh really important for me like i keep a time tracker and put in Mm -hmm. like i'm working on this for this long 
And doing like Pomodoro stuff doesn't help me, but actually having a visual representation of like, I worked on this project for this amount of time and I worked on this project for this amount of time has been really helpful for me to see in general, like how much I'm actually doing (laughs) as opposed to how much work I think I'm doing. Yeah, for sure. I find I, I'm pretty sure I am neurodivergent as well in the same way uh, or similarly, um, but um, do use the Pomodoro technique. That works for me for drafting. It doesn't work for me for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I find I'm kind of a workaholic though. So like for me, really the problem that I normally have getting started on a task, mm-hmm. um, which executive dysfunction type stuff. And then um, for me, it's once I get started, I'm fine. And I will be focused on doing that for a long period of time. Sometimes to my the detriment of my health um yeah, like i will just eat yes all the time um that's why i normally have like one big meal and then normally one or two smaller meals throughout the day um i find exercising really helps me um uh sort of curb a lot of my tendencies as far as like how my brain works keeps me more focused so um getting back on a uh, solid exercise routine for me was like really great um i didn't realize how much it did for me when i was in the military when i was working out all the time like sometimes to times a day um but it really did a lot for me and just even working out four or five times a week and going on walks and stuff really helps me in so many ways and like disconnecting my problem is like when do i stop working because as you can see well this is my bed uh, my mm-hmm. apartment right now so as you can see like i like kind of live in my office right now and soon hopefully i'm uh, moving and i will have like a separate office and like i'm so excited for that because then i can just like arrive at work and be at work and i have to like leave the house and go to my girlfriend's house in order to like get that sort of mental break because even when i'm downstairs i'm just like trying to focus on not working <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I don't I, say that it's a brag. It's like, it's a problem. Like I have extreme levels of stress because of it and I don't stop working. So to get started working, um, what really helps me is that I will uh, tell myself that only going to work for 15 minutes because uh, 15 minutes is an arbitrary number that just seems reasonable in my head, right? And if I'm really struggling getting started, I run into problems with this when I have like 10 different projects I'm supposed to be working on. So if that's an issue, I'll first put them in like a list of like what needs to be done and then I'll prioritize them by deadline. And then at that point with the first task, I'm like, okay, we're going to work on this for 15 minutes. And I'll even set a timer for 15 minutes on my phone. And I just have to write or outline or research or something for 15 minutes. And usually when that 15 minutes is up, I'm in the zone and can keep going. Sometimes on a rare occasion, if I really hate what I'm working on, when it goes off or maybe after 30 minutes, I'm like, oh, thank God. But what usually happens is the same thing that happens for you. Timer goes off and I keep writing for like three hours and then Mm -hmm. the project's done. It's just the getting started. And uh, also setting things up so that I'm like, okay, now is the time when I'm going to work on this project. And now is the time that I'm going to play a video game. And those are separate things that I'm doing on the same computer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If writing stuff comes up in my head, I don't have to feel bad about that. That's for later. And if it's an idea, I'll just throw it in the notes app and come back to it when I'm ready to go. Because right now is video game time or right now is TV time with my partner, you know. And Mm. uh, then when I'm back to my just write for 15 minutes, uh, that's when I'll open everything up. And then I'm like, oh yeah, look at all this other stuff. And writing for 15 minutes is never 15 minutes because, you know, getting all the tabs open you need to write an adventure takes 15 minutes by itself. Yeah, yeah, I find, um, yeah, I have a similar experience in a lot of ways. Um, I I really struggle to like get myself to finally just close everything and like turn off my, I found that turning off my extra monitor really helps me. So I'm only like looking in one direction. Um, But yeah, I have found that contrary to what people think, like me running 12 to 15 games a week didn't make me hate tabletop games. It made me hate every other type of game because every, <laughs> because every other type of game like is like on this computer that I use for work. So I'm just like, and tabletop games is my work. So I'm just like, I stopped playing other games. Like I just don't really. I, yeah, I just I just haven't like I think last game I played was like, I don't even remember actually now that I think about it. Um, 
cyberpunk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, a, a while ago. And that's mostly because um, I really like the genre, but I, I might check out the new expansion, but we'll see. I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I'm trans, but yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so, but anyway, yeah, I found um, finding the structure I needed in order to focus and actually start tasks was like the hugest hurdle for me. Uh-huh. Uh, to get in the in the mode for it because when i was growing up and i was writing i was just like this was like when we had dial up i'm aging myself um and um i sat I grew there up with dial up. <laughs> okay okay cool uh we're all cool here um so i you know i would have to in order to get on the internet like we would have to use the phone line and like obviously i didn't do that all the time because i wasn't allowed to as a teenager so a lot of the time it was like le- me just sitting there looking at the word document there was no distractions and that's how i learned to write so um for for me to recreate that it can be there can be a lot of barriers and distractions. It's hard. Working from home is hard. And I know uh having um my brain will help. Um <laughs> sorry. Uh I used to tell my clients uh back when everybody was working from home in 2020. Well, not everybody, but a lot more people were working from home than were accustomed to like having a designated room for working from home, changing your clothes so that you are, uh, you know, you have your work clothes and then you have your home reacts, not a suit, but like, if you're like, (laughs) okay, this is what I'm wearing to work today. Like actually getting up, putting on makeup or doing your hair or just being like, this is comfy, but this is what I'm going to wear to like, look like a working person today and then when you're done with work change your clothes i don't do that and i should (laughs) (laughs) also uh a lot of people turn off their work brain on their commute so whether they're walking home or taking the bus home or driving home and when you work from home you don't have that so taking time in another room in your house or if the weather's nice taking a walk outside uh, or even just like sitting at your desk facing away from the way you typically face and like listening to music or doing a guided meditation or something can be helpful to turn off work brain. These are all good advice things that I don't always follow, but I'm healthier when I do. <laughs> I, you know, the, oh gosh. Yeah, I wonder how much of that I should start doing like after my games because like my schedule is kind of like afternoon evening for the most part mm-hmm. uh, with, like with like one game exception on Saturdays and I finish up probably 8 to 11 p.m. my time most of the time and I probably would really benefit from just like going on a walk and like listening to, to some music or whatever before I go to bed. Um, let's talk about uh, Unseelie Studios. Um, I'm very curious about this as new uh, game studio, design studio. What do you call it exactly? Is it a design studio? Is it a game studio? It's a game studio. So this new game studio. Um, what do you want to talk about? How has your experience been? And why did you all develop Unseelie Studios? That's a lot of questions at once. Uh, what was the first one? What What has my experience been? <laughs> Yeah, what's your experience been? When did you, how did it get started? And um, also like, yeah, let's start with that. I'll start with how it got started. Uh, David and Gwen were the producers of Uncaged Goddesses and I was the writing director. Uh, The three of us met on uh, the original Uncaged and had just worked together frequently after that, not always all together, but like we'd collaborated basically nonstop. Like Gwen was one of the players on Three Flings. So we were in constant contact for the last four years, five years. It's been a long time. Um, and we'd worked together on uh, other games where I was a writer. She was an artist. Uh, David and I, I wouldn't say that we've been creative partners, but I would say that we have been on so many projects together that it would not be incorrect to say that we are have been creative partners for like five years. Uh, and basically anytime I have been in desperate need of a layout or editing, we'll do like um, work for work, like he'll do a layout for me and I'll edit something for him because David Markuski is one of the most talented people in the RPG industry and uh, he does writing, editing, layout, art. He can do it all. He's so good. And uh, he just 
blesses me with his presence. Uh, and so the three of us were like, we work really well together. And we were frustrated with the print on demand options that were available to DMs Guild. And also, as in any nominee, Uncaged Goddesses wasn't able to be not as in any nominee, but it kept coming up because it wasn't any nominee. Um, we weren't able to sell the physical copy of Uncaged Goddesses at Gen Con because you can only buy physical copies of DMs Guild products from the DMs Guild. And people kept asking at Gen Con, like, oh, yeah, so this was nominated for the Ennies. Can I buy it from you? Can I buy it from you? And we're like, no, but here's the website where you can buy it. You can get it in like two months kind of thing. And it was frustrating. And I know that that's like the DMs Guild rules. And we knew that going in. But also, uh, if you haven't seen the cover art that Gwen did for Uncaged Goddesses Friday, I know that you have. But it's beautiful gold. And we really wished that we could have done a special edition with gold foil, but that printing option is not available. So those two things combined and we're like, it would be really neat if we could, you know, for our next project, if we could sell it physically ourselves and have it printed really beautifully and make a cool adventure. And then we're like, well, why don't we incorporate? And then, you know, this first one we'll make ourselves and then we'll maybe be able to hire people that, you know, either have worked well with or that we are inspired by and pay them well as, you know, people have brought us up and paid us well and treated us nicely in the past. Like we really look to MCDM and what they've done with Arcadia as like the gold standard and would love to do something similar to that. Uh, So we were going to release uh, a mini campaign and then the OGL thing happened and we no longer wanted to be tied to D&D. So instead of releasing a mini campaign, well, I should now say in addition to releasing a mini campaign, it's not going to be a mini campaign for D&D. It's going to be a mini campaign for a brand new game system that we are currently creating. And so that has kicked our timeline down the road significantly, which has been frustrating from a financial perspective, but also really creatively liberating. Yeah. It's a very long answer. (laughs) No, it is wonderful. I loved every part of that answer. I felt like I was on a fucking journey. Like I just hyper-focused on like (laughs) you just traveling through the cosmos um, while you were telling me that story. Yeah. So a few things. Um, First of all, um, I as well look to emulate MCDM's business practices uh, for, is the cat attacking your camera? (laughs) No, but he's in his bed and just did a big stretch and the bed teeter (laughs) off the desk and he has fallen off of the desk. I I just had to yank the bed up onto the desk. (laughs) Gotcha. It's funny. Um, But yeah, I I too uh, was kind of inspired by uh, how MCDM uh, purportedly was doing business. I didn't have any personal dealings, but I talked to a lot of writers and artists and they all really liked doing business with MCDM. And as you perhaps so know- kind and <laughs> professional. Like I've never had yeah. to wait for a payment with them. They're just very supportive and it's creatively enjoyable to work with them. What's the difference you think for creative enjoyment? On their projects? I think part of it might be that they let us pitch within certain parameters, right? They'll be like, we're looking for um, something like GM tools or something. So give me some GM tools. And then you'll pitch three ideas and they'll pick one of them. And then you write your rough draft. They're always really supportive with their constructive, it is constructive criticism, right? And they'll help shape your draft into something cooler and more interesting than you imagined. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, the kind of stuff that I write is definitely not uh, Matt Colville's typical audience's stuff. Like there was Mm -hmm. the first one that I wrote was... Uh, or maybe it was second. Yeah, the second one I wrote was called like, So Your Best Friend is a Monster. And it was like how to uh, uncurse 
monstrous beings. And uh-huh. one of the comments I got was like, why would you do this unless you were the monster kind of thing? And I was like, because your friend is a monster. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you met a monster and now they're your friend. What a and D&D like, mindset. And what a D&D like, mindset. Why? <laughs> so that I put in rules for like, okay, well, if a player is cursed into being a monster, here's their new stats. But that opened up a whole new area of play. And it was fun to think of like, okay, how could a player, like, what would a player? who is a drider act like and how would that be mechanically not too powerful but Mm -hmm. also like cool but a detriment to their life (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) because because curse is definitely that's one of those things where it's like it's kind of similar to anything dealing with like applying some sort of disability to someone and it there's like kind of a conversation that goes on between or should between like the player and the GM as to how you approach that and gaining consent beforehand is like important. Yeah, I, I think, think I even um, said don't curse without consent. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's definitely one of those things where it's like you're talking about a permanent alteration of someone, how someone imagines their character. And I think of like some, it, the I think the best example of like this sort of thing is like when you think uh or i say you just in a general sense like we think or most people think like if their character is killed and then it's raised undead and used as a villain that's a really cool story arc and i remember like matt talking about this which he's done in like his stories before but matt is always talking to his players about whether or not it's cool or like he's gaining consent but he just doesn't call it that like he doesn't say explicitly like this is a consenting relationship right um in which i'm working with the player in order for them to enjoy it too and I think some GMs kind of miss the hint there that all of those like super um, involved things that require your player to give up their autonomy of their creation mm-hmm. um, can be can be just sometimes a no or something that doesn't work for certain groups or players because um, of how they've kind of constructed this character. And they're just not perhaps wanting to deal with the emotional fallout of it and there are some games i'm thinking of pbta games because i run them frequently for magpie but um where that's actually written into your character so for -hmm. example in a pillion like once you level your character all the way up aren't a playable character anymore like it says like you so a pillion is a game where you start as a little baby dragon and you go through the life of a dragon and then ancient dragons either become statues that dragons can go to to seek wisdom or pray at or you just become like a spirit or a mist that occasionally like offers wisdom and so once you reach that point like you're not playing as a statue the gm will just say like oh here's the statue of your former dragon and i think thirsty sword lesbians has another thing like that too where it's like you're an npc or you're retired and you work out your you know character's retirement But that's kind of the goal is to like not be an adventurer anymore. It's not to become the most powerful creature in the world. Yeah, it's to have that. Yeah. And especially for a game like Thirsty Sword Lesbians, which is really based around like the the queer experience and like sort of working out your issues with your identity literally and like when you level up quote unquote like you are moving between adventures and like you're just changing your class as each class kind of represents a traditional queer story in which like you're trying to um sort of work out and i don't say that for your benefit jessica but i'm talking about there's just sort of lesbians because i love that game and also um our audience needs to know more about it um and if you'd like to listen to me run it i ran it on three black halflings and you can you can listen to it on uh, their podcast wherever their podcasts are served. Um, that's for my audience as well. Um, yeah, so I love Thirsties or Lesbians for that reason. And it's like a, um, like most uh, play by the Power by the Apocalypse games. Um, it is really focused on like, let's find a way to tell a story together to where everybody leaving the table like feels good about what happened. Like that's such a powerful vibe that I think not enough uh, tabletop games really utilize. But I do think that you have to do a lot of extra work when you're running a game like D&D, which is naturally very wargamey and antagonistic in the relationship that I've seen. I saw a couple posts, um, I guess, complaining, and perhaps rightfully so, uh, about like the antagonistic relationship between GM and players that's baked into the system. And 
I'm thinking about like me as a pro GM and like playing with certain people. And like when I get bad vibes from people, it's because they're too antagonistic normally or they play into that too much. And I'm just like, I'm not here to just like be the person that I need for us to get along. And even if I'm running a horror game and like I'm like allegedly trying to kill your character or I may actually kill your character, I need for us to get along while we play this game. And if you're just going to like carry over this sort of attitude that's baked into the system, into our interpersonal relationship, that's not a table that I want to play on. Yeah, I tend to think of RPGs as um, collaborative storytelling. Uh, and I know a lot of uh, trad gamers just like screamed in horror at me saying storytelling. But like, really, that's kind of the social contract is we're coming to play pretend together with rules. And it's like the GM needs to be having fun and the players need to be having fun. Yes, the GM is the fun facilitator. And sometimes they're doing things that are antagonistic to the players they're the players characters but they're not out to get the players because if you set up that antagonism and set up this like me versus the table vibe nobody wins it's not the i don't know the whole like i'm gonna make your characters hurt so much i i know some people like that that's not my preferred play style i think we're here to experience something together and we're gonna make something really cool happen and yeah sometimes it's gonna be painful sometimes it's gonna be really silly and i think the best kind of players are ones who buy into the table experience bounce the spotlight around each other and also reinforce safety tools because sometimes someone might be too anxious to uh, X card something for themselves or remind someone like, hey, this is a line for me. And it just got brought up. And that's when you have somebody else who is like, oh, isn't this a line kind of thing? And that's when the GM or whoever brought it up can be like, oh, yeah, you're right. And take a step back. Everybody is coming to the table with that experience or that uh, mindset. I just think it's more fun and more safe. <laughs> yeah, I um. And as someone who's ran, I, so I ran 500 games last year and, oh um, <laughs> Sorry, did I, I just stress you out? <laughs> no, I, at the most I was ever running was for a week. Mm-hmm. And, but that wasn't my full-time job, right? I was also right. like, I had a full-time job and then I was writing, but I had like two or three streams and then a pro game and a home mm-hmm. game and I was exhausted. So I can't even imagine <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. What your life was like. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it was what it was, but um, it was very tiring. And with strangers, like, I think it's it's different. I don't they, know. They started out with stra- as strangers, but most of them. I've, I've had, I have some tables that have been playing with me for like 14 months now. And oh, okay, cool. So it's not, I think just because I always run one shots. Yeah, for different crowds. So it's always yeah. like, it's not always different people. Yeah. Like you do get some regulars, but it's uh bluebird's bride is always a one shot always that's the nature of the game so if i have people coming for bluebird's bride uh it's not really a campaign so i was just like i can't imagine playing 500 games with strangers yeah (laughs) in a year that sounds exhausting that's so many new people (laughs) yeah i don't run many one shots i only do one or two a month um okay and most of my games are campaigns um because i prefer to have that pseudo friend relationship it is a friend relationship after a time it's like being um it's like being a bartender or being um it's that's essentially what it is or like i own the board game store the friendly local game store that they come into and they play at they're still like paying me money to be there um Mm -hmm. and that would be the same thing paying you to facilitate an experience we're like service workers yeah exactly so i mean it's like and i also do like a little bit of sex work on the side so i mean like i still have that like kind of experience with people like to where there's like a transaction but still Mm -hmm. i mean obviously we would both rather the experience to be enjoyable positive yeah and enjoyable between both of us um but yeah i think um yeah, one shots though. Oh fuck no! I would not do five hundred <laughs> one shots. Oh god, that sounds awful. Um, that sounds really awful. Um, going back to like safety tools and like talking about it, and uh, what the the entire reason I brought up like five hundred games that I ran last year, um, was because 
I have safety tools as a big part of uh, my table culture, but still I make mistakes. Um, even as someone who's like doing this full time, uh, perhaps in part because I do, but like, it's difficult to do everything perfectly all the time. And if you're running the game in such a way to where you can't be criticized or you are beholden only to your ego is a short, um, short road to disaster. I've excarted myself before because I accidentally trigger myself. You know, I've done that before. Like I've ran a sad plot. I missed my kids. There was a kid involved. I started weeping in front of my players and I like I had to take a break. You're like, just kidding. There's not a kid anymore. Yeah. It, no, I completely cut the plot. I, I was just like, I'm not running this NPC plot anymore. But it was about uh, like a, a kid who wanted the soul of their dad to be set to rest in Barovia. Um, that's all it was. Um, it was like their, their dad was like a ghost. And um, I my kids had been on vacation for like three weeks and they were coming home like that weekend. So I was like really anticipating seeing them. And I hadn't thought much about like them because I sort of like put that sort of stuff out of my mind um, a lot of the time. Um especially from like me being in the military, I know how to, I generally compartmentalize as like a way to shoulder stuff like that. But yeah, so it all just came back when I was role playing little, little Timmy. Uh, and yes, I don't put, I don't, I don't do kid plots anymore because like that was, that was not it. I mean, it was kind of funny at the time, but like, it was just like, at the same time, it was like, that's unexpected. That's what can happen, like in the middle of a game. And I tell my players, like, sometimes you broach onto stuff you did not expect to be a problem. And then because of what's going on in your life right now, and you haven't dealt with it yet, it can come out in the game. If you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable, it can come out in the game. We, um, I'm, I'm so grateful to uh, the Three Flings crew. Three Flings is a stream that I'm a producer on. And I used to be the only GM. Now we rotate GMs. But uh, since now, instead of just running on Caged, we spotlight independent games every week almost. But uh, I'm so grateful to the team because not only will they uh, actively use safety tools, you know, with each other, they'll ensure that chat is also being mindful of stuff that's been X-carded. So you talking about uh, kid stuff made me think of this because um, kind of joke among the stream for a while was that one of the players, uh, her character wouldn't take missing person cases anymore because so many of the early uncaged adventures was like, my daughter's missing. And it ended up being your daughter has run away with her monster girlfriend. And uh, so she was like, that's a dream really. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, So she was just like, I'm not going to look for your daughter. She's with her girlfriend in the forest or under the water or in the mountains. Deal with it. And made like a business card that said like Adara, uh, like uh, adventurer, no missing persons. By level 20, right, they weren't looking for missing people anymore. And it was just kind of a joke, like no missing persons. And then my nephew was a missing person and he's been found. But I put a line on like, hey, we're not going to make missing persons jokes anymore because like it's not funny to me. And uh, the cast was cool with it, but it like chat didn't know. So occasionally they would be like, lol, a missing person case. And uh, the players and the mods were immediately like, hey, we're not joking about missing people right now. Thank you. And then provided like a link to the search for my nephew, which was just so sweet. <laughs> and I really appreciated that. Wow. Um, that's real. <laughs> yeah. That's some, that's some real shit right there. Damn. <laughs> but now I'm we can joke I... about it again, that he's back and fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that's the case. Um Debbie Downer brought down the stream. Sorry. No. No, that's <laughs> fine. I you know, it's been a couple of podcast recordings, but since the last time I cried, so this is good. <laughs> oh no, I didn't mean to make you cry. Friday. No, no. I'm not crying yet. I okay, no, I'm not good. crying yet. I'm not th- I'm not quite there. I was almost there. Um so flea mortals. Uh yeah, you don't have to necessarily talk you don't have to necessarily talk about uh spoiler territory. You can talk in general terms or you can talk about what was your experience like writing for flea mortals, how excited you were about it. Uh let's talk about flea mortals. I like I said, I love writing for MCDM. Anytime they want to hire me, I am right there. Uh so I am a little bit known for writing hags at this point. Uh, People know that I like hags and now people know that I like vampires. And so James Intercazo reached out to me and was like, hey, would you like to redo the hags for 
the D&D hags for flea mortals. And I was like, yes, I would love that. And so that was what I wrote. And he uh, gave me some uh, guidance on them, like, because flea mortals has new types of monsters like this one's a controller this one's a striker i forget the actual terminology it's been a while Mm -hmm. since i wrote those but you know there if i pulled it up i could find it i know one of them is a controller (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh so they should their actions should be this kind of thing and uh but anything else was free reign and uh he liked them so much he came back and was like Matt really likes these. He wants you to write a boss hag and uh, needs it to be this CR. And I was like, I I would love to do that because there were a couple hag concepts that hadn't fit into green sea or night hag. And that was, you know, the idea of like a hag with a little familiar and the cat lady hag. So uh, nice. I, I had to do that. And I just, um, yeah, had a blast <laughs> redoing hags because my, my sticking point is that it is absolute nonsense that the sea hags and the monster manual have no spells. They're hags. Oh, they should have yeah. spells. So uh, the flea mortals sea hag has spells. She can control water like a sea hag should. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes I feel like a lot of those monsters, for whatever reason, they were like, you know what? We could design something new and interesting, but instead we're just going to cut all that and they get multi-attack. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think they're trying to change that direction because, uh, yeah, it does seem... I mean, that's the easiest way to make a monster tougher is to boost the HP and make them attack more, best with the action economy. Yeah. But, like, give them something cool to do, right? (laughs) Yeah, you would think so. Um, Yeah, I'm very excited to pick up Flea Mortals when it comes out. And hopefully... Is that soon? I have no idea but i assume so given how many packets have come out right uh for people who backed it there are um for people who work on it there are little packets that come out i think every month Mm -hmm. uh with samples of monsters and layers and additional rules and yeah there's uh i have something else coming out in there they are doing something fun where they're having uh the person who wrote a boss monster is not going to write the lair for that boss monster someone else is going to write that boss monster's lair so we're getting to take on layers for each other's monsters oh uh, cool yeah and uh i think sarah madsen wrote the one for my hag <gasps> and just did such a good job it's so fun. actually you know what you know what I was just talking to Sarah about that. Actually, she's on the Vineyard team and I was talking to her about and she just told me, yeah, I just wrote a lair for some hags and it just the light bulb just happened. Uh, yeah. Which, <laughs> oh, yeah. She knocked Sarah's it great. out of the park. Sarah's great. Oh, geez. Um, I would say if you're out there and you need a writer, hire Sarah. But Sarah's fucking booked. Stay away from Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> like Sarah's mine. <laughs> I... Sarah's got only so much free time, and I need Sarah for that little bit of sliver of time that she can give me for uh. my project. Fucking hands off, Sarah. Um, but yeah, so oh gosh, okay, we're drawing we're drawing down to a close. I want to give you some some room to talk about um, how people can start following Unsealed Studios and w- when they can start looking forward to uh, you all releasing some more stuff um, and maybe the next product that you are working on. I'm working on a lot of products right now. (laughs) Um, So you can start following me on Twitter at Miss underscore Jess zero three. You can follow my website at JessicaMarkhamWrites.com. You can sign up for Unseely Studios. Uh, You can subscribe to our website at UnseelyStudios.com. Follow us on Twitter at Unseely Studios. And those are the best ways to stay in touch with us. We have pushed our timeline for the release. So I cannot tell you exactly because I don't want to lie. It was supposed to be uh, launching around now. Now I'm going to say at earliest fall of this year. I'm, I'm going to say this year, 2023, uh, is the plan. I just can't give you any more specifics than that because the new uh, OGL stuff was 
uh, a surprise. But we've got some really cool stuff already with it. And we're really excited with where that's going. And in addition to that, uh, I just released the crowdfunded version of Oops All Draculas. So you can grab that on DriveThruRPG or itch.io. Um, I have something coming out for Mongoose Press. It's an adventure for their game Shield Maidens that deals with the war between the elves. Um, And yeah, that's the main stuff that I have coming out. I'm just looking at what have I been writing. Oh yeah, and if you backed uh, the Owlbear plushie with Metal Weave Games way back when uh, and have heard tell about the lore book, I wrote that lore book. So get excited for that because that'll be coming soon. I'm just Googling all this stuff so I can provide these links. So, Sorry. Okay, I've got it. Yep, no, you're good. Uh, those, are, those, All of those links will be in the show notes uh, if you'd like to follow Jessica and check out what Jessica's doing here in the year of 2023. I think that's it. I guess that's I just like pushed this up on... <laughs> too much too many things i was just looking at what else i have to work on today and it's like oh yeah i'm doing two panels on friday i've got this to work on oh, that. For magpie they're doing a con a little con for their discord people so i'm doing a panel at 2 p.m eastern on friday called being a fan of your players okay. and then another one on four that's on running horror in pbta um where can they where can they find you on the if they want to play a game with you? Uh, sign up for the Magpie Curated Play Program. I usually uh, just run one game a month with them, but I might run some more now because I am having more free time now. But we will see because right now that's what my schedule allows. Okay, <laughs> so cool. you could play in that game. <laughs> cool. I've added that to your show notes as well in case you want to play with Jessica. All right. Thank you so much for coming by, Jessica. It was a blessing to talk to you. Hi, thanks for listening. If you want to support me, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash isfriday. Or you can find some of the work that I'm doing at vineyardrpg.com if you want to pre-order the book that we made.